His relaxation was sought now, not in the closely printed pages of his books after working hours, but in the study of his fellow men, and the complex and fascinating emotions and passions by which they were swayed. The fact that the gods of chance had seen fit to involve him in two real-life murder cases since his retirement, and that he now numbered among his friends two inspectors of police, including one from Scotland Yard itself, had served to enslave him more. He glanced around the compartment at his companions, thereby compelling them to make self-conscious efforts to appear as though they had not been furtively eyeing him. There seemed to be nothing of particular significance in his manner, but when he turned back towards the window his preoccupation was not with the landscape, but with the mental exercise of placing the four people whom his brief examination had covered. Three were men and one a woman. This last was middle-aged, cheerful-looking, and judging from the filled shopping basket, returning from an expedition to the market town two stations up the line where she had joined the train. The mother of a family of healthy young animals, he decided, probably the wife of one of the local farmers, out with the object of supplementing her home-baked farmhouse fare. Of the men, two responded equally easily to analysis. One was a parson, too easy that, he decided, the collar left no opportunity for theorising. The second, from his neat pinstriped suit, a little shiny at the elbows, and the leather briefcase, in various papers taken from which he had been engrossed, was almost equally, obviously, a city businessman paying an out-of-town call. The third man presented more of a problem— Tremaine had been trying to affix a label to him for some while, for he had already been in the compartment at Victoria when he himself had entered. He was a middle-aged man, whose round, bespectacled face and plump figure, enclosed in a well-cut, if somewhat creased, blue suit, should have suggested good-humoured prosperity, and yet somehow failed to do so. The cheeks, which should have been smoothly aglow with well-being, had a faint trace of flabbiness, and there were little lines of strain etched into their folds. The eyes behind the spectacles had a darting, worried quality, as though some urgent problem was pressing upon their owner, and he was searching frantically not so much to solve as to evade it. Mordecai Euripides Tremaine, his name was a legacy from parents in whose minds had dwelt a hazy but fervent appreciation of the Arthurian legends and the Greek classics, gave him a great deal of thought, but without the satisfaction of the said thought crystallizing into a sound theory. He had not, he told himself regretfully, achieved the skill of a Sherlock Holmes, whose agile brain and sharp eyes would have required no more than a few moments in which to give the stranger— to use a phrase from Shakespeare, both a local habitation and a name. The next station was that at which he was to alight. As he stepped down to the platform, he squared his shoulders and breathed deeply and deliberately. He fancied already that he could smell the sea. He had made up his mind that he would do so before he had left the compartment, and although he had never sailed the ocean in anything more substantial than his imagination— a hint of salt in the air was always enough to set his blood racing. He recognized the much-traveled little saloon car standing in the station courtyard in the same instant that he himself was recognized.
He waved a greeting to the middle-aged couple, evidently husband and wife, who had been awaiting him, and Paul Russell came towards him and reached for his hand. "'Glad to see you, old man,' he said warmly. Tremaine returned the grip, smiling into the kindly eyes in his friend's weather-beaten face. "'You're looking well, Paul,' he told him. "'How is everything?' Are all the dalmering babies being born at a respectable hour now, instead of dragging the unlucky doctor out of his bed in the middle of the night and robbing him of his beauty sleep? Jean Russell came round the car to join her husband. Talking about babies in a public place is no fit way for a bachelor to behave, she said with mock severity. I can see you're still a problem, child, Mordecai, despite your grey hair. A busy country practice and a great deal of voluntary social work left neither Paul Russell nor his wife a great...